Louis's 10-year-old daughter one day came up to him, and, you know, they're having a conversation after school, and she said, hey, Dad, have you, uh, did you ever bully anybody when you were, when you were a kid in school? And, you know, Louis kind of um, embarrassed, ashamed, had to, had to admit that, yes, he, in fact, had bullied somebody in school uh, back when he was a kid, back in junior high. And as he began to think about that, you know, remembering uh, being a bully and some of the kids he picked on, uh, there's this one kid in particular named Chad. And so Louis, as he, he thought about this, decided, you know, I've never really, you know, talked to Chad after junior high. Maybe I should, like, apologize. So uh, I think he found him on, on Facebook and decided he was going to apologize to him. And so he sent him the following message. So Louis wrote, hey, Chad, I was recently talking with my 10-year-old daughter about bullies. She asked me if I ever bullied anyone, and sadly, I had to say yes. What came to my mind is just how mean I was to you when we were in junior high. Uh, I want to apologize. If we lived in the same state, I would apologize to your face. I don't even know if you remember, but I do, and I am sorry. So, you know, sent that message off on Facebook, you know, the little, the little delivered sign, and then you wait for the little red check mark to show up, and he just kind of, you know, waits for that. And after a little bit of time, you know, Chad saw this message come through, and Chad, in fact, did remember, because for Chad, the bullying in junior high and high school was just so bad that he decided to move away from his hometown after graduation, and he vowed he would never go back home. He just wasn't going to do it. Uh, so he saw this this message because, you know, Louis was one of these bullies, and a lot of these bullies, they didn't just make fun of him, they even threatened his life. And so he, you know, he saw the message and he wrote back the following. Louis, I'm quite moved by this. Thank you, and I accept your apology. In 20 years, you're the only person to apologize for being a bully to me when we were younger. I hope you can proudly tell your daughter that you have also apologized for it, and that we are good. It's amazing what 20 years and children can do to us. Thank you again, and I hope you stand up to bullying anytime you see it. Have a great day. So, Louis replied, thank you. Your forgiveness means more than you know, and I hope I'm not the last to ask forgiveness from you. Cheers. And in fact, I think uh, the show Inside Edition even arranged for them to like meet up at their hometown high school and... Um, and talk and, and give Louis the chance to apologize in person. But, you know, those are, those are nice stories, right? We, we enjoy it when, when the bully grows up and mature, because maybe you can relate to that. You maybe were either the bully or you were bullied. And you can maybe remember, well, you know, some of your bullies, you know, you'd be like, well, it's really not fair, because they, you know, they grew up, they matured, they would never do that again, you know, they would definitely apologize, they're good guys. But what about... You know, what about the bullies who don't change? What about the bullies who don't grow up, they don't mature? What about them? You know, sometimes the bully needs forgiveness, but sometimes, man, the bully needs to be taught a lesson. And as we grow up, you know, when you're a little kid, evil looks like the bully on the playground. But when you grow up, bullies aren't, you know, just the mean, they're not the mean kid on the playground anymore. Our bullies change. There's still evil in the world. It just looks, it just looks different. Right? Because we know there's evil in the world, but it just, 
Instead of being a bully on the playground who, you know, picks you last in kickball or makes fun of you all the time or calls you names, it's, it becomes things like cancer and COVID and divorce and death and people committing financial fraud or mishandling your, your investments or it's hate speech or it's racism or the list could just go on and on and on of all these things we see in the world and we go, man, this is just evil. Is anybody going to do anything about that? Well, yes, somebody is going to do something about that. But it might not be the way you think, and it may not be as quick as you want it to be. You know, as we've been going through our series in Joshua, uh, in a few of our different, different stories, there's been these little passages that we haven't, like, totally gotten into or, or, or dug into yet, because they're just, they're really difficult to talk about. Because as you kind of go through, you know, at the end of, like, the Battle of Jericho, the Battle of AI, the, I mean, just all these different battles even the end of our chapter last week, the end of chapter 11, there's just these, these passages that are pretty difficult to handle because it's just like God seems really violent, he seems really mean, he tells Israel to wipe out all these people and, and destroy everything and burn the city to the ground, and you just think, well, how do we take that? And then we take, you know, Jesus in the New Testament who's like, turn the other cheek, put your sword away, Peter, you know, what, what do you do with that? It's been a, you know, it's not been just a problem for us. It's been a problem, you know, for a very, very long, uh, very long time. So here's the deal. It's, you know, we're not going to be able to talk about all of that in the sermon this morning, you know. I, want, I, want, I don't want to avoid it because it's in your Bible. So you're going to run across those passages and think, what do we do with that? But they're complicated, and I don't want to oversimplify it. So here's what we're going to do. So I'm going to teach a class on a Wednesday night on November 10th to dig more into that issue of why does God seem so violent in the Old Testament. So if that's something you'd like to study more, just mark your calendars, November 10th, 6 p.m. up on the third floor, we'll have a longer discussion about that where we can really kind of look at it in more detail and take our time, and I'm not going to over, you know, because in a sermon, it's just going to run the risk of sounding very, very simple, oversimplifying it, not really doing it justice. So, so that's what we'll, we'll do. So for the sake of today, let me just kind of wrap it up this way, put it this way. I think when you read those passages in the Old Testament, we're seeing on one side, we're seeing God's justice come out. We're seeing him deal with evil. We're seeing him deal with problems. We're seeing him him judge for sin. I think that's what we're seeing happen. And if you remember a few weeks ago, right, we talked about how you're either on God's side or you're against him. Right? It's not about we have our side and, hey, God, come on to my side and bless me and help me accomplish my dreams and my goals. It's about we get on God's side and do what he wants us to do and fulfill his mission. And I think a lot of times these passages are about this is what God's going to do to the people who aren't on his side, who get against him. Because the Canaanites and the Amorites, they're not Israel's enemies, they're God's enemies. And God just happens to use Israel to bring justice and punishment on them. You know, and I think another part of this is, you know, if you remember back in Jericho, the Battle of Jericho, when the spies meet Rahab, Rahab begins to tell them how terrified Jericho is of them because they heard about what happened at the Red Sea. Well, the Red Sea happened, you know, 40 years before Israel showed up to Jericho. So, you know, if you think about it, God gave Jericho 40 plus years to repent because they knew, well, there's this God out there and he can you know, part the waters, and he destroyed the Egyptian army. So they knew, 
And even after 40 years, they got seven extra days where Israel, every day they come marching around the city walls and then they go back to camp and they come back and they march and they go back to camp. And only one person repented and that was Rahab. And God said, hey, spare Rahab. When the city walls collapse, she'll be safe. Her home was probably, she probably lived in a house inside of the walls of Jericho. So probably almost the entire walls came crashing down except for this little section where a house would have been that Rahab would have lived in. So I still think God has grace, God has mercy, but it is a tough, tough question. So on that Wednesday, we will, we'll talk more about it. But I think there's just, there's something in us when there's evil, when there's bullies, when there's some problem to deal with, we just want like the superhero to come swoop in and save the day, don't we? I remember several years ago, I went uh, to a really big movie theater in New Orleans with some friends to watch Avengers Endgame, which I had been waiting for for like 10, 12 years. Like, I remember going to the movie theater when the first Iron Man came out. I'm like, this is awesome. And then the little end credits scene, you're like, wait, they're making more and they're all connected. Like, we were so excited. We've been waiting for this for years. And I mean, I'm in this movie theater, it's packed. And I mean, I, you know, other than my friends in the row with me, like, I don't know any of these people. And yet, we're clapping. People are grown men are standing up and applauding and crying in the middle of this superhero movie, right? And it's like, why are people, it's not like the actors are in the back, it's not like the directors and the producers are all there to hear this applause, it's not like they're like, thanks for such a great movie. No, it's like there's something in us that just gets so excited and fired up when the superhero comes in, saves the day, defeats the bad guy, we just love that scene, right? Whether it's the Avengers, whether it's Superman or Batman or whoever it is, we love that moment, we just love it. So, the tension we see in our Bible is, you know, what do you do, right? What do you do with this God of justice, this God that seems violent? Because we need him to deal with the bullies. He's got to do it somehow, some way. And then what do you do with all of his mercy and kindness? So I think, I think we need justice, but we also need mercy. Because, you know, there's bullies like Louis. They grow up, they mature, they apologize, they need forgiveness, they don't need a punishment. So what about those guys? Who gets mercy? Who gets forgiveness? So I titled this sermon, you know, In Moments of Mercy, because we're going to focus on the mercy side today in Joshua chapter 20. So if you have your device, your Bible, you want to go ahead and flip to chapter 20, we'll be in uh, there today. But I think, you know, to sum it up, God's mercy and God's justice, I think they're really connected. You can't have one without the other. So we're going to kind of focus this morning on the mercy part, and then later we'll focus on the justice part. You know, so I once heard somebody uh, put it this way. They said this, grace is when you feel worthless, peace is when you feel restless, but mercy, mercy is when you feel helpless. So what do you do when you feel helpless? Well, let's look at Joshua chapter 20 and see what, how God wants to handle when you're helpless. So chapter 20 starts off this way. Then the Lord said to Joshua, tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge as I instructed you through Moses, so that anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally may flee, may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. When they flee to one of these cities, they are to stand in the entrance of the city gate and state their case before the elders of that city. Then the elders are to admit the fugitive into their city, 
and provide a place to live among them. If the avenger of blood comes in pursuit, the elders must not surrender the fugitive because the fugitive killed their neighbor unintentionally and without malice aforethought. That's, I think, the only time I've ever heard the word aforethought. But anyway, they are to stay in that city until they have stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who is serving at that time. Then they may go back to their own home in the town from which they fled. And then the next couple of verses, they just they lay out here are the six cities. Here's, here's what they are. And then down in verse 9, any of the Israelites or any foreigner residing among them who killed someone accidentally could flee to these designated cities and not be killed by the avenger of blood prior to standing trial before the assembly. That's kind of an interesting little passage. There's a lot there to unpack. First, it might seem just a little bit uh, silly to have like, well, if somebody accidentally kills somebody, like, how do, you, how do you accidentally do that? Like, was that a common thing? Like, do a lot of people do that back in the Old Testament? Um, actually, uh, probably. There's actually some examples of this in your Bible. For example, Deuteronomy uh, verse nine, or chapter 19, verse 5, says this. For instance, a man may go into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and as he swings his axe to fell a tree, the head may fly off and hit his neighbor and kill him. Well, that's a bad way to start your weekend. Uh, and, you know, this was pretty common because back then your axe head was tied onto the handle with rope. So it was very common. You're in the middle of chopping down an axe, and that rope gets a little loose and slips, and as you pull the axe back, there goes the axe head, and you've just lost your, your neighbor. Not a great way. There's another example in Numbers 35 about what if someone accidentally drops a heavy object or throws something, doesn't see a person there, and it kills them. Again, not a great way to go. You're just walking around the corner, and a boulder comes flying out of nowhere and smacks you in the head, and there, there it is. So there were apparently these situations and these examples they had of, like, what do you do when this kind of a thing happens? People could accidentally die. So here's the question that I have in chapter 20, and it's this. How does mercy act? How does mercy act? And I think if we kind of you know, work our way through this passage, we can find a few things that mercy does in action. You know, so we have these you know, cities of refuge. They're explained as a place you can go when there's accidental death. Um, and they're actually, so we have these six cities, and your Bible actually talks about the cities of refuge in four of your books in the Bible. It's in Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and here in Joshua. So it must be important if you're going to use four books of your Bible to talk about the cities of refuge and how they work and where they're at and who can use them and, how, and you know, all the laws around them. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but in like extra-biblical kind of literature, Jewish tradition, it says that the cities of refuge, like Israel, basically once a year would have like a work day and they would all like get your shovels, get your tools. Everybody would go out to the roads and they would clean up all the roads leading to the six cities of refuge scattered around Israel. So they would all have this work day. It also says that the cities of refuge, their roads were twice as wide as all the other roads in Israel. They were in the best condition and they made sure the road was the quickest route to that city. And every intersection in Israel had, this, had these signs that said refuge, and it pointed to the closest city of refuge. So no matter where you were in Israel, you could find one of these six cities, and they made it easy to find mercy. 
You know, so obviously, like last week, we're in Joshua, like chapter 10. Now we're in chapter 20. Like, what happened in the middle there? Well, you can go back and read it if you want. Uh, this is one of those places where if you're in like a, a you know, Bible reading plan, you get to Joshua, like you get to Numbers, that's pretty tough. You get to Leviticus, that can be tough. And you get to this part of Joshua, and it's like, oh my goodness, come on already. Because it's like, and so-and-so got this part of the land, and this part of the land, and they got this field, and, they, and you're like, okay, who cares? What's that got to do with any of this? But one of the things you learn as you're kind of reading places like this is one of the tribes of Israel didn't get their own land, and that was the Levites. Now, the Levites were the priests, the ministers for Israel. They didn't get their own land. Instead, they were given 48 cities spread throughout Israel, and all six of the cities of refuge are Levitical cities, which means... You know, you know, it, you know, now that it's cold, like you and your buddy, you're out, you're, you're chopping down wood for, you know, the fireplace, and the axe head flies off and kills your neighbor, and you go running up to a city of refuge. Well, the city is going to be full of, like, ministers and priests. That's who you're going to encounter at a city of refuge, the people who taught God's word, the people who knew God's law better than anybody else, the people who would present sacrifices all the time. That's who you would find in your cities. And so... The Israelites worked really hard to make mercy accessible. So I think one of the things that mercy does is mercy is easily accessible. It's easy to find. It's easy to get to. And so as a church, are, are we doing that? Do we make it easy for people to find mercy? Do we make mercy accessible? Are we removing barriers for people to find that, to find that forgiveness and mercy in Jesus? Do we make it really easy? Or do we make it kind of hard? Do we add some, some hoops or some hurdles to the process? So that's one part of these, these cities of refuge. You know, there's also this avenger of blood in the passage. You're like, well, that sounds pretty terrifying or serious. You know, it might seem like a, you know, I don't know, mafia position in the Godfather. Like, hey, go take, go take care of the business. Go clean up the problem for me. You know, whatever it is. Or is it like, you know, a trained assassin like John Wick? Not, not, quite, that, not quite that intense. Actually, the Hebrew word for avenger of blood is this word goel. And goel is the same word used in the book of Ruth for Boaz. It's this idea of you've got this goel person, this kinsman redeemer, who's kind of in charge of whenever there's a problem in the family, they kind of help take care of it. So if it's, you know, land needs bought back because the family's going into poverty, they're allowed to go get the land back. If, you know, somebody needs a husband, they're, they're allowed to become that husband and provide and take care of people. That's kind of their job. And so one thing that Goel would do is, if you murdered somebody in the Goel's family, they were the one person that God said, they're the only one who's allowed to carry out justice. So they're allowed to go on a manhunt, find this guy, track him down, you know, dog the bounty hunter, get this guy, bring him to justice, deal with him. Like, they can, they're the only ones allowed to do that. But... You make it to a city of refuge, you plead your case, and here's the deal, right? At the, at the city gates, which is where you're supposed to meet, at a city of refuge, you know, we think, well, city gates, that seems a little bit weird. But back then, the city gates were like the town square. That was like the central point of everything. At the city gate, that's where the marketplace would set up shop. The city gates is where the university would meet. That's where the, the, the court would meet. So if you get to the city gate, you know, you come running up, calling for help, like, the leaders of the city are already there. They're there conducting business. They're there hearing cases of the law. They're there teaching classes. And you're right there. And so the Levites can come out. They can hear you. The elders of the city who are supposed to be the leaders, they can hear your case. And what they do is 
they keep their, their heads cool. They keep their emotions kind of stuffed. They're outside of the situation so they can hear your case. They're supposed to judge it appropriately. They can hear what's going on and make a decision. So another thing that, another thing that I see mercy do is mercy keeps a cool head. So how do we do at keeping our heads cool? When somebody comes to us with a problem, do we just kind of get all fired up and enraged and angry either for them or for somebody else and we suddenly get very emotionally involved in the situation? Or do we keep a cool head? Do we use wisdom? Do we see the person before we see their problem? Or do we just think, well, let's just solve this problem? Or can we see the person and hear them and take care of them? Because that's what happens at these cities of mercy. You, you show up at a city of refuge and and the priests, the leaders of that city, they hear you out, they hear your case, they judge it rightly, and they protect you. So that avenger of blood comes up, and they're super mad because you killed their, you know, their brother-in-law or whatever, and they're, they're furious, and they'll say, hey, calm down, right? And not just are we going to take care of them, but we're going to provide them a place, you're going to make sure they have somewhere in the city to live, you're going to take care of them, because they can't leave. They've got to stay there. And as long as they're there, they're safe. And the elders and the whole city is kind of there at the gates to protect this one person from the avenger of blood and say, hey, you, cool, 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 calm down. We're going to take care of this person. We're going to hear them out. So mercy keeps a cool head. And at the end of this passage, verse 9, there's that, just that little phrase he throws in. He says, you know, this is for any Israelite and for the foreigner living among you. And here's what's interesting. Throughout the Old Testament, there's all these laws about the foreigner living in Israel. But the weirdest thing is we don't have a whole lot of stories that tell us who the foreigners are. It's just kind of this weird thing. Like, we don't, I don't know who they are. You know, back in, in Exodus chapter 12, when the Israelites are leaving, there's just this little phrase, and it says, and many others went up with them. Well, who are they? I don't know. Maybe, best guess, some of the Egyptians. They saw what God did and decided, yeah, we'd rather be on, on his side. We're going with you. Maybe it was the Egyptians. You know, along the way in Joshua, I actually think when the Bible in Joshua says, and they wiped everybody out, I actually think that's an exaggeration. Because then you find other places in Joshua where they go back to those cities and there's people still there. You go, wait a second. So I thought you wiped everybody out, but apparently there's still people there. And where are these foreigners coming from? So maybe... There just are a whole lot more people that didn't get wiped out in the conquest of Israel. They were able to join Israel, and God extends these laws to them too. He says, hey, these people as well, they can go to a city of refuge, they can get help. So mercy is for everyone, for everyone. And is that true for us as a church? Could anyone come to our church, could anyone come here, no matter what they think, no matter what they look like, no matter how they act, no matter what their past is, no matter what their problem is, and could they find mercy here? Could they find it? Because the truth is, people can belong in a church before they believe. Sometimes they, people, they just need to be a part of a group of people, they just need to be a part of the church family, see what's going on, get involved, just kind of watch, see what God's like, explore, learn, in their own way, make a, build a relationship with Jesus. They're not going to, you know, get their life together day one, none of us, none of us still have our life all the way together, right? We've still got things we struggle with. And for us as a church, can we extend God's mercy in that sort of way? That no matter who comes in, we're not trying to, you know, clean them up, make them perfect before they can get involved or make them perfect before they can be a part of church. we we'll say, hey, you can belong first, and then hopefully you'll believe. We'll show you what God is like. We'll help you along the way. 
So I think we read about these, these cities of refuge, these places of mercy, and I think we see that <clears throat> we want God to punish evil. Like, we really want that. We want God to deal with the bullies. But his mercy, I think it also means his justice on one hand is one day he's going to deal with all the evil. But on the, on, the, on the other side, his mercy means there's still time to get on God's side. And there's this one verse in the New Testament that I think, at least for me, this, this always kind of helps me with this tension of how do we have this God in the Old Testament that seems so violent, but we've got these passages where he just is so merciful. And so in 2 Peter, verse 8 and 9, Peter writes this, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Now, you probably know that verse. You're probably pretty familiar with it. But listen to the next verse. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So I think God's justice is he will set the world right. He will deal with evil. He will take care of it. But he's going to be pretty patient about it. He's going to wait. He's going to create opportunities. But there is going to come that moment where, hey, you had time. You had time. And so this is that time. So, you know, God's mercy in the Old Testament, it came through things like the priests, the Levites, it came through sacrifices, it came through the cities of refuge. But now, church, we're the cities of refuge. We're those places of mercy for people to come and find Jesus. So here's, here's what I think I want to say about this passage. If I could put it up into one, just one, one phrase, one sentence you can take home with you, it's this. Move onward in God's mission with mercy. Let's not get, you know, too excited, too fired up about whatever God wants to do here, and we just kind of plow over people, right? Or let's not get so committed to, hey, let's, let's solve this problem in our community, and we just kind of steamroll the problem, and we don't even think about the people. And, we, you know, we, we just try to fix a problem, but we don't build relationships with people, we don't help people out, we don't show people Jesus in the process. Because our job is just to get people to Jesus. That's our job, to create the opportunities, to make it accessible, to make it easy, to make it available for everybody. That's our job. Our job's not to, like, make them perfect, clean them up, fix everything, convince them they've got to live a different life. It's just, no, come with me, come see Jesus. Why don't we do that first? I think that's what this passage calls us to do. You know, because hospitality isn't just, hey, let me make you a cup of coffee. Hospitality is, you're in my house, you come in under my protection. You're in my house, I'm going to provide for you. And one of the ways, church, that we can help provide for people is to help them encounter mercy through Jesus. And so, church, how can we keep doing that? Those are the questions I'm asking, and I think for all of us, it'd just be good to keep thinking about. How can we just make it so easy for people to find mercy? to see the person before the problem, to make mercy accessible and easy to get rid of as many, you know, hurdles and and hoops for people to jump through as possible just to help them get to Jesus. That's what we want to do. Let's pray. Dear Father, I'm so thankful uh, for the gift of your son Jesus and the mercy that he gives to each and every one of us. And Father, I'm thankful that for so many of us in this room, we you know, we too were against you, and you gave us an opportunity to repent. We, you gave us an opportunity to find mercy in you. You gave us a chance to change, and we're thankful for that. 
And Father, please help us when, uh, when maybe we, we let our emotions get ahead of us. Uh, help us in those moments where maybe we kind of we make a judgment on somebody that, that's not ours to make. Um, and please forgive us if there's ever been a time where we've come between somebody and you. And just help us to be, to be those guideposts on the road that show where mercy is. Please help us to keep the roads wide for people to come and find you. So it's in your name that I pray. Amen. Now there's one part of Joshua chapter 20 I kind of I skipped over just a little bit. And there's this, this phrase in the passage that says that a person has to stay in the cities of refuge until the high priest serving at that time dies. Because after a while, the, the place where you're supposed to find mercy becomes a little bit of a prison. You can't go home, can't go back to your family. You've got to stay there because the avenger of blood, as soon as you get out of there, he's coming for you. And so you've got to stay stuck in the city. But when the high priest that year, whenever the high priest dies... It's like a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's like when you're playing dodgeball and somebody yells jailbreak. Everybody from all the six cities of refuge get to go free. And I don't think it's no accident that the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, says of Jesus Christ that he is our great high priest who will be forever in the order of Melchizedek. I don't think that's, a, that's an accident. And so for all of us, we've had that moment where we've been set free. The high priest Jesus, he went to the cross, he died, he rose from the grave, and he set us all free. And many of, many of us in this room, we know that. There's a whole lot of people who still don't know that. And there are a lot of people who aren't even looking for it. They don't really think they need it. And so, as we do every Sunday morning, we always want to give people a place where you can, if you need to find mercy on a Sunday morning, we want to make it easy for you to do that. And so here in a minute, I'm going to head over to our parlor, just back here on my right, your left. And if you have a decision for Jesus, or you'd want to learn how to get more connected or how to find mercy, I'd love to talk with you or pray with you back there. And so as we continue to worship our God of mercy, would you stand?